back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Jack Jacobs, Professor of Political Science at John Jay College and Graduate Center of the City University of New York. He's here to talk about his new book, The Frankfurt School, Jewish Lives and Antisemitism, published in 2015 by Cambridge University Press. Professor Jacobs, thanks so much for being with us on the show. Thank you for initiating the interview. I appreciate it, Max. Okay, so just to get us started, could you tell us a bit about how you came to write this book? Sure. Quite some time back, I was working on a project that had to do with the aid and support that was given by the Jewish Labor Committee to German uh, refugees during the Nazi era. Uh, The Jewish Labor Committee was an organization that had been founded in New York in the early 1930s, and they moved heaven and earth to to help people who were trapped uh, in in Europe by the rise of the Nazis. Um, At that point in time, the papers of the Jewish Labor Committee um, had been given to NYU, uh, New York University, to the Tamament uh, Institute, but they had not yet been arranged. They were in a vast number of cardboard cartons sitting in a back room. And so I had to go through these cartons one by one, never knowing what I was going to find. Um, And at some point, to my shock, I discovered in one of these boxes a, a typescript, something like 1,500 Uh, pages long that had been written by members of the Institute of Social Research, and that among the people involved in this typescript were none other than Theodore Adorno. Um, I had been a student of political theory, and I knew about the Institute of Social Research, and I knew about Theodore Adorno, or at least I knew a little bit about Theodore Adorno, but I had no idea that there had been any connection whatsoever between the, the Institute and the Jewish Labor Committee. They, they came from very, very different uh, worlds. And so um, I began to investigate this, even though it had virtually nothing to do with the project that I had uh, begun. And I wrote to Leo Leuventhal, who was um, a member of the Frankfurt School and who was still alive at that point in time. And I wrote to Martin Jay, who had written the definitive work on the Frankfurt School, and and I received encouragement uh, uh, from them. And so my project began um, in a long time ago, and it took off from there as I began to realize that in order to explain this typescript, that I had found and the significance of it, I would need to talk about the the history of the Frankfurt School itself and the trajectory of those who had been involved in it uh, over a very long period of time. And that was the origin of the book. That's great. So uh, we'll definitely uh, get in and, and tackle a bit more of that. But just for our listeners, if you could give us a little bit of an overview of uh, what the Frankfurt School uh, was or is, um, and what the, the the Institute for Social Research is, and and who are the major figures from the Frankfurt School um, that you're looking at in your book? You mentioned Theodore Adorno. If you could yet yeah, tell us a bit more. Gladly. 
In the wake of the First World War, um, there was interest in Germany in certain circles in um, starting an academic entity that would have a, a Marxist or a leftist uh, orientation and that would do research on issues of, of interest to the left from a scholarly uh, perspective. And um, the university in Frankfurt, Germany, uh, was willing to allow such a uh, entity to be uh, affiliated with it. And a uh, formal institution was created that was known as the Institute of Social Research. And the Institute of Social Research, when it began in the uh, uh, early 1920s, uh, was a, a grouping that was devoted to study of uh, economic matters and the labor movement and the history of socialism. And there was nothing else like it in Germany. Uh, German universities were rather staid and rather conservative. And, and this new institute therefore proved to be attractive to individuals who couldn't easily find a place for themselves elsewhere in the, the German uh, academic uh, world. The, the institute um, uh, uh, was organized, it got up and running, and the uh, initial uh, director uh, became ill and, and passed away. Um, it was when Max Horkheimer was brought in as the new director that things began to crystallize uh, uh, in, in ways that ultimately were very important in, in theoretical and philosophical and political terms. Because Max Horkheimer, uh, as the director of the Institute, uh, grouped around him uh, a number of people who became quite prominent over a, a long period of time. Initially, that is to say, in the late 1920s and early 1930s, there were five uh, individuals who were actually working at the Institute and who had full-time associations with the Institute living in, in Frankfurt. At that point, Adorno was not, not one of them. He, he affiliated uh, somewhat later. But the five, in addition to Max Horkheimer, were his lifelong friend, Fritz Pollack, and Leo Leuventhal, and Eric Fromm, and Heinrich uh, Grossmann. That is to say that this was a rather small grouping, and some of the most famous people who later affiliated with uh, the Institute were not yet members uh, during this uh, period, in the late Weimar period uh, that I'm talking about right now. Uh, in addition to Adorno, who, as I've already indicated, became a, a member in a later uh, period. I would also mention here from the very beginning of our discussion, uh, Herbert Marcuse, who um, only became a member of the Institute uh, when it went into exile after the beginning of the, of the Nazi period. Uh, but when Horkheimer became uh, director, I think that the way that I would characterize what he was up to is that he wanted to initiate large-scale projects that would com combine both qualitative and, and quantitative approaches, large-scale projects that, that would try to with, with the major 
political and social and philosophical uh, questions of the day. And he eventually uh, developed a, a term, he and his, his colleagues developed a term, critical theory, to describe the approach that they were uh, using. Um, as I'm certain you know, the Nazis uh, came to power in Germany in the early 1930s, and it was necessary for Horkheimer and his uh, colleagues to leave Germany. And luckily, they were actually rather prescient in anticipating what was going to happen. Uh, they all, that is to say, all of the individuals who I have already uh, mentioned, um, succeeded in, in leaving Germany. And they were also able to bring the assets of the Institute out of Germany with them at a rather early uh, point in time. And to give you an, an indication of the kinds of projects that they were interested in uh, during this era, uh, they wanted to try to figure out how had this happened? That is to say, why and how had the Nazis come to power? And why hadn't the, the German working class, the German proletariat, played the kind of role that an early generation of Marxists had anticipated that it would play? Why, why hadn't there been a successful proletarian revolution in Germany? And Horkheimer said to his colleagues, in effect, well, we're going to use a, a multidisciplinary an interdisciplinary approach to try to figure this out. And we'll each bring to bear our own uh, expertise, uh, whether that is the study of uh, economics or the, the study of uh, psychology or the study of uh, uh, literature or the study of philosophy. And we will, um, of course, work cooperatively and see if we can come to grips with this phenomenon. And I think that that was a, a very important example and very indicative of what it was that the Institute hoped to do and what it was that Horkheimer and Pollock and Leuventhal and Fromm and the others intended to do. So I think we'll look at it in a second at uh, how exactly the Frankfurt School changed their analysis, uh, um, particularly of anti-Semitism once they um, arrived in the United States. But um, before we get to that, could you um, you s tell us a bit more about uh, the Jewish, particularly Jewish life paths of uh, the critical theorists who you look at. You say that you reject any attempt to explain critical theory through biography, but that the history of the Frankfurt School cannot fully be told unless due attention is paid to their Jewish backgrounds. Um, so if you could tell us a bit more about what you mean by that and, and what the, those life paths uh, of the theorists were and how they were particularly Jewish. Well, what I would say is that it is far, far more than coincidence that literally all of the individuals um, who I have mentioned who were involved with the Institute of Social Research as full-time members in the late Weimar years were, were of Jewish origin. Um, Horkheimer, Pollock, Leventhal, Fromm, Grossman, these were all 
uh, men of, of Jewish origin. And they all arrived at the Institute down what, what I call Jewish paths. Now, these were different paths for uh, each of these men. But what's for me significant is that their family backgrounds, their upbringings, their, their interests were actually rather distinctively Jewish in a variety of different ways. Uh, the ways in which they got to the Institute were, in effect, distinctively Jewish in a variety of different ways. Um, so perhaps if I, I trot very rapidly, um, mm. or maybe not so rapidly, through uh, through each of these uh, individuals, or most of them, you'll, you'll see what I, I have in mind. Um, Horkheimer and, and Pollock uh, both had uh, rather testy, uh, in some some ways, but also rather uh, typical uh, kinds of relationships with their uh, families, with their uh, successful uh, Jewish uh, businessmen uh, fathers. And in the case of, of Horkheimer, uh, what that meant was that his uh, turn to a, a leftist orientation was tied in some important ways, I, I think, to rejecting certain components of, of uh, the way in which he had been raised and, and of his father's legacy. That is to say, his father, I think, had hoped when Max was young that Max would himself become a successful business person. And Max wanted nothing to do with that. And, and in a, uh, a, a way that was actually rather typical for Jews of, of his uh, generation, uh, he was engaged in this push-pull with, with his father. Uh, the family was um, uh, uh, very explicitly uh, Jewish. Um, his father uh, went to, to synagogue, uh, albeit not uh, consistently, not all the time, uh, but Max was given something of a Jewish uh, education. He, he had a, a, a bar mitzvah. He was, his father was involved in uh, B'nai B'rit, um, as were virtually all uh, Jewish men or many Jewish men. Virtually all is too, too strong. Many Jewish men in, in uh, Germany in, in, in that era. And, and so Horkheimer grows up in this milieu where he's certainly very conscious of being uh, Jewish, but he has this dynamic where he's rejecting some components of his parents' uh, politics uh, and, and at the same time trying to find his, his own path. I, I, I could say something similar about Leuventhal, except that in, in Leuventhal's case, unlike in, in Horkheimer's, Part of the rejection of <clears throat> or dynamic of the relationship between Leuventhal and his father was that Leuventhal became attracted to explicitly Jewish institutions at, at a young age. Um, he um, uh, at one point becomes religiously very observant. He becomes Shemel Shabbos. He becomes uh, kosher. Um, he marries a woman who is deeply involved in, in uh, a, a Jewish life. Now, ultimately, Leventhal moves away from this explicitly positive um, uh, uh, period of, of his Jewishness, but there's no question at all 
that that his involvement in Jewish institutions had a profound and lasting impact on him over a long period of time. Um, Eric Fromm, um, unlike uh, Horkheimer or, or Leuventhal, uh, did not grow up in a uh, assimilated or, or acculturated uh, background. Fromm did not um, uh, reject um, his, his parents' uh, background when he was young. He grew up in a strictly orthodox environment, and, and he studied traditional texts from a rather early um, age uh, quite uh, uh, rigorously. And he was um, himself involved in uh, helping to create some of the most important Jewish uh, cultural and educational institutions uh, of the 1920s, like the Lehrhaus, the famous Frankfurter Lehrhaus. Fromm was involved with that institution from an early uh, uh, age. Uh, Grossman came from a somewhat different background because he was, uh, as German Jews used to say, an Ostjude. He, he was from a more East European environment. Grossman had grown up uh, in, in the, the eastern part of the Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire and had become involved with um, the um, Austro-Hungarian equivalent of the Jewish uh, Workers' Bund before he ever came to, to Frankfurt. Um, uh, Pollock, uh, finally, of this initial uh, group, I've already alluded to the fact that, that his father was a, a wealthy uh, business person. Uh, Pollock was not someone who was ever explicitly, directly involved in, in Jewish affairs. And in fact, he, he rejected um, uh, throughout his, his life the notion that, that Jewish matters had had any significant uh, impact uh, on him. Uh, but I see his life path as, as somewhat uh, differently than he himself saw it. And I would argue that his involvement in uh, German leftist intellectual life is actually very similar to the involvement of countless of his German Jewish uh, counterparts in many different, <clears throat> excuse me, cultural and political uh, uh, movements. And, and that in, in this way, it, it's not an accident that, that he was attracted to the Institute of Social Research, attracted to the the um, Horkheimer uh, uh, circle, we could say, uh, this was a, a, a rather uh, widespread phenomenon in, in Weimar Germany. So what I would say is, of course, the Institute of Social Research was not founded as an explicitly Jewish uh, entity. It would be nonsense to suggest uh, otherwise. And of course, it didn't choose its uh, members on the basis of their background, their religiosity, their ethnicity, or, or anything of the kind. But when we look at who the members of the Institute were in the period that I'm focusing on right now, what we find is that these five men had an elective affinity for one another. They had an elective affinity for people who were like them. That is to say, 
men of a particular generational cohort who were of Jewish background, who were leftists, and who were intellectuals. And there were precious few individuals who were not Jewish, who had similar elective affinities and who associated with the Institute. So in chapter two, you examine the Frankfurt School's changing analysis of anti-Semitism, particularly as it evolved during their years of exile in the United States. Um, tell us a bit about the, the studies that were devoted to examining anti-Semitism and authoritarianism during these years and what the relationship was between the Institute's empirical and theoretical works on anti-Semitism. Um, gladly. I, I think that it's a significant um, uh, subject and I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about it. I, I think I'd like to begin not by talking about those studies, but rather uh, by, by talking about the changes in the attitude towards anti-Semitism in the core members of, of the Institute during that exile period. Um, I've already indicated that the key members of the Institute of Social Research um, went into uh, exile. Uh, the individuals who I've mentioned eventually all made it to the United States at various points. Uh, Marcuse and Adorno and others um, also joined them in, in the United States. And I think it's worth pointing out that despite what I've said earlier about um, uh, Horkheimer's background, Horkheimer was not a person who devoted uh, uh, sustained uh, theoretical attention to the study of uh, anti-Semitism, either uh, in the Weimar years or in his first uh, years in, in America. And indeed, uh, there's a rather uh, famous article that Horkheimer wrote in, in the late 1930s that appeared in the, the periodical of the Institute of Social Research, the it's, it's an article that's called The Jews and, and Europe, and, what's, and it's a piece written by Horkheimer. And, and what's significant in that, uh, that article is that Horkheimer has what I think we could best describe as a classically Marxist perspective on the so-called Jewish question in this piece on, on the Jews and, and Europe. And, you know, what he says in, in the article in a few pithy phrases is you can't speak about anti-Semitism without speaking about capitalism. You can't understand the rise of fascism without speaking about uh, capitalism. And um, that, I think, is something that uh, uh, Marxist and, and Marxist-influenced theorists would have all agreed on however many differences there were amongst them. But I think that what we find is that as um, the, the Nazis consolidated power and as the, the Holocaust uh, began and as the situation of, of Jews in Europe worsened and as the members of the Frankfurt School themselves encountered anti-Semitism in the United States, and they did encounter anti-Semitism in, in the United States, Horkheimer became open to 
um, thinking about anti-Semitism in a somewhat different, uh, somewhat more multifaceted, indeed somewhat more sophisticated way. And I argue that he did so in part under Adorno's influence. That is to say that Theodore Adorno, who was um, himself, to, to use uh, categories that I don't like, but that, that are pretty clear, he was himself half Jewish, that is to say, only partially of, of uh, Jewish origin, um, and, and who had himself, Adorno, had attempted to remain in Europe when the other individuals I, I have uh, mentioned um, left, Adorno thought at first when the Nazis came to power that by keeping his head low in Germany, he might be able to get away with staying in Germany and writing under uh, an assumed name and uh, just kind of struggle through. But that as the years went by, the years being the 1930s, Adorno had come to see that that was not going to work and that the anti-Semitism that he was encountering in Germany uh, was rather deeper and rather more significant than he had initially understood, and that he was himself going to be uh, victimized by it unless he got out. And so after an interim period in England, he did get out. And Horkheimer uh, became interested in uh, working closely with Adorno on theoretical and philosophical projects. And when Adorno comes to the United States, Adorno has a very major impact on Horkheimer, including an impact on Horkheimer's understanding of, of anti-Semitism. And Adorno at one point says something along the lines of, you know, everything that we used to see from the point of view of the proletariat it, it is now being um, focused on the Jews and that we need to take this phenomenon uh, uh, seriously. And so um, uh, with um, uh, the aid of other members of the Institute, including the people I've already mentioned and other recruits who are added to, to, to the roster of Institute uh, members in, in the 1940s, that the Institute begins to solicit funds for and begins to conduct research on major projects devoted to an understanding of uh, anti-Semitism. And during this exile period, um, the Institute is associated with um, two uh, profoundly important uh, world uh, famous uh, books I would say, um, that continue to be widely read today, uh, what they're very well known, I think, uh, in the academic uh, world. And, and the studies I'm, I'm thinking about are, on the one hand, Dialectic of uh, Enlightenment, which was co-written by Horkheimer and, and Adorno, and on the other hand, the authoritarian uh, personality uh, in, in which Adorno played a key role uh, alongside other individuals who were not members of the Institute of Social Research. Now, the reason that I'm mentioning these two profoundly important, very, very inter interesting uh, works 
is that if one looks at dialectic of enlightenment, what one finds is that the, the last substantive uh, chapter is a chapter of uh, entitled uh, Elements of, of Anti-Semitism. And if one looks at uh, the authoritarian personality and scratches a little bit under the surface, what one finds is that the authoritarian personality was actually conducted, the research for that work was conducted under the auspices of the um, uh, AJC, one of the most important American uh, Jewish uh, organizations, and that Horkheimer was made a member of the staff of the, the AJC during the period when the work on the authoritarian personality was underway. So what I'm suggesting here is, first of all, that where anti-Semitism had not been part of the explicit research agenda of, of the Institute in the Weimar years or in the early uh, exile years, during the years of the Second World War and immediately thereafter, uh, matters related to anti-Semitism became absolutely central to the work of the Frankfurt School and of the Institute of Social Research more broadly defined. Now, what they had to say about anti-Semitism is really, really complicated. But what I would say in a nutshell is the way in which their perspective in, um, let's say, dialectic of enlightenment uh, differed from what Horkheimer had said um, in, in the Jews and Europe is that um, Horkheimer and Adorno came to see that one couldn't explain anti-Semitism using only a strict Marxist uh, analysis or relying only on um, uh, an economic uh, explanation of, of uh, the relationship of, of, of Jews to, to non-Jews, but that one needed to bring to bear any number of other uh, matters. One needed to understand uh, the religious roots of, of anti-Semitism. One needed to understand the psychoanalytic roots of, of anti-Semitism. One needed to understand the role of anti-Semitism in the development of contemporary civilization itself in order to come to grips with it. And in Dialectic of Enlightenment, in that chapter on elements of anti-Semitism that, that I alluded to, what, what Horkheimer and Adorno do is they sketch out a series of interrelated elements, all of which have to be understood as a, a constellation, which together explain anti-Semitism in ways that no one element possibly, possibly could. So I guess that what I would say here is um, anti-Semitism moves from being a matter which was not um, on, on the agenda of the Institute in the Weimar years to being the central or a central component of its research agenda in the years of the, the Second World. And you'll, you'll remember that I said that when Horkheimer became director, um, he had from the beginning said, well, what we've got to do is we've got to combine quantitative and qualitative 
approaches in order to explain large social phenomena. And you asked me about the empirical studies that they had done. Um, the, the empirical studies include the work um, that um, ultimately appeared in the authoritarian personality. And the empirical studies also include that work on, on um, uh, anti-Semitism in the American labor movement that I had happened upon by accident in the NYU uh, archives uh, many years earlier. And what Horkheimer and his colleagues were trying to do was at one and the same time um, understand this phenomena of anti-Semitism and explain this phenomena by conducting empirical work and by doing philosophical and what I would call psychoanalytic work to explain how and why hatred of the Jews had grown to be such important, uh, grown to, to have such importance. And, and, and I, I guess that what I argue, uh, summing up here in, in that, that second chapter, is, is that the empirical studies and the more theoretically oriented uh, studies uh, interact with one another in, in what I dare say was a, a dialectical uh, 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 manner. Um, there have been other scholars who have claimed that, that this didn't work. I think that it did work to a considerable degree and that the quantitative work and the theoretical work uh, shed light on one another and that Horkheimer and Adorno were successful in, in um, trying to come to grips with and help us understand uh, anti-Semitism in a sophisticated manner in, in ways that earlier theorists had not been. Great. So moving on to the final chapter, you turn to an examination of key critical theorists' attitudes towards Israel. Can you walk us through these differing opinions and explain how they are linked to the relationships of these men to Jewishness and Judaism? Um, sure. I, you know, I think that in order to understand what that chapter is doing there, why the book is structured that way, I need to say a word or two about, about background. Um, I, I was approached by um, uh, Cambridge to, to write a book on, on the Frankfurt School and, and Jewish Matters, and I, I was delighted to have been asked. And I, I sent it back a, a proposal, and what I said in my initial proposal was, well, you know, the first part, I, I'll deal with Weimar and in ways that we've talked about, talk about the backgrounds of these people. And in the second part, I'll talk about exile and the studies that they did of anti-Semitism and the impact that these studies had on, on the, the, the Jewish um, um, self-identifications of the individuals involved for lack of a better phrase. And, and, and then what I want to do, I said in my original proposal in the final part of the work, is I want to compare the, the um, uh, work done by the members of the Frankfurt School on these issues with work done by others, uh, work that was done by um, Hannah Arendt, uh, work that was done by, uh, by Sartre, um, how these various theorists were received both by the Jewish world and by the non-Jewish world. And when Cambridge sent out the, the proposal I had given to blind readers, you know, to this day, of course, I don't know who, who the readers uh, were. 
what the readers consistently replied over and over again is, you know, this is a really interesting project and you should give uh, uh, Jacobs the contract and, and you should encourage him to go ahead. But we don't think that he should do that last part of the book here in this book. If the first part of the book is Weimar and the second part is exile, then the final part of the work should deal with the final decades of the life of the first generation of the of the Frankfurt School. That, you know, that there should be an, an arc of, of, in effect, beginning, middle and, and end. And, you know, that made a lot of sense to me. The, the, the readers, whoever they were, clearly knew what they were talking about and all had a lot of experience quite manifestly in producing successful books. And so I listened to them and I scrapped the entire projected third part of the work, which I had already done some, you know, preliminary work, work on and started to think about, well, what am I going to uh, have this last portion of the book revolve around? And as I started to do research on the, the lives and careers and ideas of people like um, Horkheimer and, and Leuventhal and, and Brahm and, and Marcuse in the post-war era, it came clear to me that their varying attitudes towards Israel and Zionism, particularly after the establishment of the state of Israel in, in, in 48, was extremely important in terms of understanding who these people were and in terms of understanding the differences amongst them. And so what I ultimately came up with is, is something like this, something counterintuitive, but I actually think um, worth us thinking through. And, and that is, in the case of the core members of what had been the Horkheimer circle, had been uh, the, the key members of, of the Frankfurt School interested in, in such matters, the more that a theorist knew about Judaism and the more that they identified with uh, Jewish religious uh, doctrines, the more critical they were of Israel hmm. in this era. That is to say, in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, the final decades of, of their lives. And, you know, with, without going through the, 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 the litany of the thinkers, um, uh, uh, once again, I, I, I'll give you the two poles, so to speak, on, on this uh, matter. Um, Eric Fromm, as I indicated uh, a little bit earlier in, in this discussion, was raised in an Orthodox um, home, was uh, uh, rigorously observant in his childhood and adolescent years, was intimately familiar with Jewish religious texts, um, he ultimately secularized. He ultimately moved away from uh, uh, orthodox observance, indeed from observance of, of, of any kind. But of course, he retained his familiarity with those texts and he retained a great deal of, of sympathy for specific Jewish religious uh, uh, doctrines throughout his life, despite the fact that 
He was not a believer late in life. And Fromm was the strongest critic of the state of Israel, uh, uh, of the members of the institute with which I'm, I'm concerned in this book. Um, he was consistently very critical of, of, of the state, never came to, to grips uh, with it, never went to, uh, to visit uh, Israel, and uh, uh, wrote uh, extremely strong condemnations of the policies of uh, Israeli uh, governments over a long period of time. And here comes the punchline for me. And over and over and over again, what he would say in these condemnations was, in effect, the, the positions being taken by the state of Israel and by the government of the, the state of Israel are not consistent with Jewish religious doctrine. They are not consistent with Judaism. They're not consistent with what I, from uh, was always taught to believe was Jewishness. Now, on the other side of, of this uh, equation, I've, I've mentioned Herbert Marcuse, of course, a very famous name, but I didn't talk about his um, background the way that I talked about the backgrounds of Horkheimer or Leventhal or, or Pollock or Fromm or Grossman, because Marcuse had not been involved in, in the Institute in Weimar. So let me say here that Marcuse came from a far, far more acculturated background than did um, uh, uh, Horkheimer or, or Fromm or Grossman or any number of other in individuals. Um, he did not have a strong, uh, positive uh, Jewish identity. He did receive a, a minimal uh, Jewish uh, ed education, but it wasn't a matter that was of, of interest to him as he was growing up or, or in his um, adolescent years or, or in his early years as, as a theorist. He was certainly aware that he was uh, Jewish. He was himself, I would argue, almost certainly uh, a victim of uh, anti-Semitism in the period when he was a, a graduate student, when he was uh, finishing his, his uh, habilitation uh, um, work, uh, for example. But it wasn't, he, he, he wasn't amongst the people who wrote on anti-Semitism as some of his colleagues did uh, in, in the uh, exile uh, years. Now, what's interesting for me is that after the establishment of the state and in his later decades, Marcuse takes a much, I think, softer line, a much more sympathetic line on, on Israel than Fromm does. Um, Marcuse is someone who uh, was open to what today we would probably call a, a two-state solution. And Marcuse makes a trip to Israel where he goes out of his way to meet with uh, uh, leading Israeli uh, political figures as well as with academics and, and leftists of, of various kinds. And it, it's clear that, that Marcuse is... Um, concerned that the, the anti-Semitism that had resulted in, in the, the murder of, of millions of Jews only decades earlier had not gone away. 
and he saw uh, Israel as a, a place that, that could provide a, a refuge to those who had survived and maybe a refuge to other uh, Jews if need be, if anti-Semitism was going to rear its ugly head uh, once again, and, and he feared that it very well uh, might. So to, to sum up what, what I've just said, what I try to do in that last part of the book is I sketch out the attitudes towards towards Israel of four figures, Horkheimer and, and Leuventhal and, and Fromm and, and Marcuse. And what I try to show is that there was an inverse relationship there between their Judaism, sympathy for Judaism, knowledge of Judaism, and their attitudes towards the state of Israel. The more that one knew about Judaism, however they defined that, and they didn't define that um, in precisely the same way down the, the line, the more one knew about Judaism, the more one sympathized with Jewish religious doctrines, the more critical one was of the state of Israel. Well, that's about uh, all that we have time for today. So thank you very much for um, joining us, Jack. Thank you, Max. I appreciate it. Um, and um, I look forward to having additional contact with you down the line. Fantastic. This has been New Books in Jewish Studies uh, with your host, Max Kaiser. We've had Jack Jacobs, Professor of Political Science at John Jay College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York on to talk about his new book, The Frankfurt School, Jewish Lives and Antisemitism, published in 2015 by Cambridge University Press. Mm-hmm.